time this room was painted was 15 years ago. Welcome to my classroom. My name is Lisa. My last name is unimportant. I teach high school social studies in South Central, and the neighborhood is terribly poor. I hope to retire soon despite a modest pension. A few Decembers ago, I was astonished by a public announcement made at the Adams Mark Hotel in Columbia, South Carolina. 79-year-old Estee Mae Washington Williams told the world that her father's name is James Strom Thurmond. And in her words, at last I feel completely free. Estee Mae was my teacher several years ago. Her autobiography just came out last month. She had great energy, warmth, and enthusiasm. She gave me direction in life. I have no idea how she was able to maintain her silence about Strom Thurmond, the oldest living senator in, Amer in American history. I think back to my school days with Essie Mae. I share this information about Essie Mae and Strom Thurmond for a variety of reasons. And I remind my students about what was probably the biggest decision made by the Supreme Court in the last century. 1954, Brown v. Board of Education. Most of this history just goes over their heads or down the nearest toilet. Most of my kids never heard the name Jim Crow, never heard of Jim Crow laws or Jim Crow schools. Thurgood Marshall, on behalf of the NAACP, argued for integration in every public school in America. Marshall clearly won in the Supreme Court, but many historians think it was a Pyrrhic victory. In March 1956, Strom Thurmond, along with many Senate colleagues, initiated a Southern Manifesto in, in protest of the Supreme Court's social activism. This congressional rebellion helped to ignite racist mobs in all too many communities. I think back to my school days with my teacher, Essie May. I have so many questions I want to ask her today. Like Essie May, I also come from black and white family. She was in the unique position to observe two separate societies spinning, like two heads of a coin. Two heads of a coin. Senator Strom Thurmond and Justice Thurgood Marshall. Two pronounced individuals on opposite sides, destined for scandal and fame, destined to clash in a most public way. Essie May was the first child of an American icon who lived and worked in the Senate longer than anyone. With my eyes closed, I imagine I am holding Essie May's gentle, outstretched hand. And in 1955, Essie May makes her arduous journey from rural Pennsylvania to the nation's capital to visit her father, James Strong Thurman. I truly wonder how these two manage their personal affairs. Imagine. April 1955, Washington, D.C. I distinctly recall asking for the master barber to come to my office, Loretta. Oh, not tomorrow, today, five minutes ago. Now, darling, I did certainly request old Marvin, the chubby colored barber from DuPont Circle. So get him, please, in a prepaid livery, and with the, in the hour, God help you, I'm going to have to take away your sweet little Christmas gift. <laughs> Thank you so much, sweet Loretta.
And God damn it, we're out of cigarettes again, Mitch. Yes. Does she have an appointment? Yes. Well, it's not really a convenient time. Shall I send her away or have her ready? Listen, don't, don't forget to phone Linda Johnson before quitting time. Yes, sir. Uh, send her in, but buzz me with a price that's in five minutes. Of course, sir. No, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, uh, good afternoon, SMA. Look, gee, what? Is it raining? Yes. Oh, here. Here. Have a seat. Thank you. Now, would you like a hand towel? No. Oh, uh, you look so much older and so elegant. Now, is that a new hat? Yes, Senator. Oh, I do love women's hats, SMA. I think they are the secret behind the beauty of refined southern ladies. It helps ward off the rain. Oh, good hat helps helps distract my eye from a lady's shapely leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cigarette? No, thank you. I don't smoke. Oh well, now South Carolina's tobacco state. You have to help our economy. <laughs> well, would you like coffee or Coca Cola? Coca Cola would be nice. All right. A tall Coca Cola with ice. And a gentle twist of lemon. Oh, oh. and a hand towel. <laughs> Thank you, Loretta. Your mother never wore a hat. She liked scarves, beautiful red scarves. And I always told her that red was a beautiful color in the morning sun. No, but she didn't like compliments, which always made me so god-awful tongue-tied. <laughs> well, how long you in Washington? A few days. Splendid. It's a fascinating city. Indeed it is. You have new staff. Oh, yes. I'm a bigger man now. They don't know me. Well, give them time. They're quite new. They know how to be discreet. How's your job? I love teaching. Oh, I envy you. Now, you look sad. I'm sorry. Well, how can I help, my dear? I remember our first meeting back in Edgefield. Of course. Your mother was quite sick then. She took me by the hand to your law office. I was 16. Oh, you were the picture of absolute beauty in you. I have a photograph of you from that visit. Do you? Oh, well, I, I keep it in my home study. It's much safer there. I have a few photographs, too, of your last years at South Carolina State. Exquisite photographs of education. I trust that you keep my photographs within proper reach. My aunt is... Very ill in Coatesville. Oh, now that's right. That's what you wrote. Now you have several aunts. I think she needs an operation. Oh, dear Jesus. Whatever you can do will be a godsend. Well, do they need money? I thought you could call her this week. Well, of course. Just give my secretary her phone number. Thank you. Good diet is crucial for long health, as you may. And, and exercise. Walking, running, jumping, swimming. Each and every day, including Sunday, as you may. Now, do you know what? Makes me unique in all of Washington. You're the stingiest tipper in the Senate? <laughs> you exercise more than any other man in the oh, Senate. Oh, well, that's right, little angel, but there's another reason why I stand out. You're the first senator to reach office as a write-in candidate. And I'm very proud of it. I am the people's legitimate choice. Voters had to write in my full and complete name on the ballot. <laughs> well... 
How's your husband, Julian? He's fine. Well, please convey my respects to him. I will. He's an exceptional lawyer. Yes, he is. He's keen on the new Supreme Court, isn't he? I suppose. Brown versus Board of Education. It's on his mind, naturally. Ticking time bomb, SMA. Tick, tick, tick. Tears my heart in two. How do you think the court will decide? Well, this country moves like a glacier. The court should be mindful of the pain soul of this country. Not every colored child has a benefactor. I do realize that. Do you? We're all burdened by Jim Crow laws, as it may, but this need not be an American tragedy. Children can mix freely. The younger, the easier it would be. Believe me, as a teacher, I know. Mm, and that is God's great wish? Yes. Well, then God needs to address each southern state in due time. <laughs> in due time, sir. You work too much. Yes, my dear. You should pay more attention to your wife. <laughs> I probably should. But she's a much younger woman. It's hard to catch her every weekend. I worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say so. Yeah? Right now? Well, yes, I, I could put out that file already. Just give me a moment. Would you like to stay for lunch? That would be nice, but perhaps another time. Oh, thank you, SMA. You know, when that door is closed, I don't expect a handshake. Is that too much there? Justice Earl Warren is having lunch with Justice Hugo Black, where much high court business is on the menu of the day. You haven't touched your plate, Hugo. Heartburn. Maybe an ulcer. I'm picking up the check. Order something else. If you don't mind, Earl, I'll just drink. Oh, nonsense. <laughs> Order an omelet that's quite gentle on the tongue. You sound like a radio ad. Thank you. I should stay in Alabama. I've grown tired of this town. You sound like a broken record. You can fish and hunt all you want here. Well, really, is that right? Would a justice lie to another justice? <laughs> yes. Happens all the time. I miss the West Coast. Then complain to Eisenhower. I'll complain to FDR. Well, it's easy to vent to a corpse, my friend. A ghost simply taps back on the window or dangles some rusty chains. Roosevelt's a far classier ghost than that. Now, let me see. He would use a microphone, sit by a hearth, flick his cigarette holder. Equal patrons? Yes. And in the end, does it even matter? Order a goddamn omelet. I can't stand eating alone. Fine. You got to break eggs to make an omelet, Earl, so flag the waiter. You have been on the court 16 years. Yes. I've lost count since Vincent died. Maybe I'm still in shock by hey, his passing. You want to pay homage to Vincent? Homage, homage. I wouldn't express things exactly like that. You and I agree. We do? The Deep South might close every single public school to block integration. Has no bearing upon my decision. With all deliberate speed can mean a thousand different things to each town and city. 
and with all deliberate speed, Earl, to a wife in bed has its own connotation. <laughs> oh, look who just came in. I do declare I believe that, yes, that Miss J. Edgar Hoover himself. <laughs> the other way. Oh, no. Strong thermal. Now, certainly looks like the young senator. Who is he with? Some woman, not his wife. Good-looking woman. Yeah, his wife is attractive. Earl, not his wife. <laughs> the lady here. Yeah, very attractive redhead. Oh, but don't look now. He's staring at us. You want my definition? No, my legal definition of a Dixiecrat. That's a charming plantation Democrat who has a Confederate flag firmly up his rectum. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were once in the Klan, Hugo. Youthful indiscretion, naturally. Enough good judgment to earn your way into hell. Probably. My intention is clear. Just as I thought we had to reverse the lower court Brown decision, we need to deny the Virginia brief asking for an indeterminable period of time. Virginia's stance is thoroughly gloomy and uncooperative. School immigration has to have a pressing timetable or the whole enterprise is a farce. I agree. Felix agrees. With a little more luck, perhaps all nine of us will agree again. I worry that Stanley Reed still abides by segregation. Worry is a useless emotion. Only if you portray God Almighty. <laughs> no. Well, Stanley is unpredictable and a pain in the ass, so don't count him out. You got a crystal ball, Earl? Well, I should. We overruled Plessy Beautiful. Yes, but Jim Crow behavior won't disappear for years to come. Oh, here comes Strong. Toward us? Yes. Damn, what a horrible day. <laughs> Started without a hitch. To hell with ugly. Let's call it. Oh, good afternoon, distinguished jurists of our high court. Afternoon, Senator. I felt compelled to saunter over, but you must please forgive my rudeness. No rudeness taken. I hear the cheese omelets are excellent. <laughs> well, now, really. They're good marshal's recommendation to me, actually. Huh. Are you alone? Well, I am never alone, Mr. Chief Justice. That is my office manager in a magnificent chiffon dress. And her salary is far from royal. How do you imagine she underwrites herself? Maybe she moonlights as a ballroom dance instructor. I know you remember. Ten cents. Ten cents a dance. Uh, how's your wife? Very well, thank you. Jean is back in South Carolina. How's yours? Quite fine, thank you. The, the Chief Justice and I are elite members of the Ex-Governors Society, representing the best of California and South Carolina. Jobs change. The dance remains the same. Ten cents a dance. The, uh, the Senator is very fit. An avid swimmer, I believe. Oh, and no alcoholic beverages, Mr. Chief Justice. Almost the same waist size since college days. Well, uh, please do excuse me. I, I know you scholars have important business to discuss. He and I are Southerners, Earl. In fact, both of us, born, bred, and raised up in the deep south. What's your point? 
that our legacy and history seals our respective fates. Below the Mason-Dixon line, there's a deep-seated fear of miscegenation. Oh, that's an ugly word to my ears. No other word more apt. I think that fear is in every city and state. Yes, yet in the South, there are so many generations of blacks and whites sharing common biological ancestries, two races racing along parallel lines. <laughs> two races falling off parallel Exactly. And this clown, Strom Thurmond, has to appeal to his constituency. No matter how tolerant he feels inside, it's the human paradox. You prescribe utopian dreams and see the hateful racial wall before us grow even taller. I don't think we're begging this nation to lose all reality. Now, Earl, ask yourself who's kidding whom. I ask myself that every day. You are equating sweeping, sweeping social change with some idealization not found on this soil. We make the effort to move forward, Hugo. Why? Because we who sit up high on the Supreme Court are safely beyond the will and the whim of the voting public. Is this your revelation for the day? I feel this almost every day. As do I. Tell me then, Earl, now that we're on our third drink, (laughs) do you feel superior to, quote, the voting public? No. Well, I certainly do. (laughs) Well, then perhaps you're more honest than me. After the initial Brown decision, the Supreme Court pursued a greater course of integration in public parks, rest stops, courts, libraries, and many other public buildings, and practically all public commercial facilities. To disclose the race of a candidate on a ballot became illegal. Sexual contact between the races was no longer unlawful, and laws which forbade marriages between blacks and whites were struck down. My parents came from the West and were spared that prohibition. Yet, I still sense the pain they experienced each and every day of their lives. Curiously enough, the court's directives desegregated much of the South. Public parks, restaurants, sports arenas. Yet, our public schools, our precious, humble public schools, were still under the spell of Jim Crow codes. I ran into Estee Mae a couple of years ago in Los Angeles. She didn't recognize me. She was courteous, and I reminded her of my favorite memories from her classroom. Estee Mae laughed and then hid her mouth with her solid hand. I don't believe in coincidences. She was glad to know that I became a teacher. I made a big point in my classroom the other day. In July 1955, Judge John Parker, reviewing the South Carolina school case, stated, the Constitution does not require integration. It merely forbids discrimination. According to Parker, the Constitution does not forbid such discrimination as occurs as a result of voluntary action. It merely forbids the use of government power to enforce segregation. This legal reasoning known as the Parker Doctrine was eagerly subscribed to in federal Dixie courts. I can't hazard a guess how utterly conflicted Thurgood Marshall was at that juncture. Call Murphy. 
Hello, hey Carl, how you doing? Fine, thank you. Tell me, what do you think of Tuesday's decision? Better than the case of hemorrhoids. Okay, I was disappointed in the beginning when I read that first paragraph. Then I read all that good faith, deliberate speed, and prompt start bull. I'm wrestling with the two. I'm not surprised, Thurgood. Well? We live in a very white land. Tell me about it. It's so white that I can't tell when it's snowing. And I'm dreaming of crazy colored rainbows. I'm a son of Baltimore, for better or worse. So is that literary crank H.L. Macon? Well, he's more racist than a crank, that son of a bitch. <laughs> Macon was under the spell of Nietzsche. What can you expect? I'm also a child of Harvard. It helps to come from a family with money up north. But when I applied to Johns Hopkins University for postgraduate work, I was rejected due to my color. I'll never forgive Johns Hopkins, and I have a love-hate for my town. That's why I sued the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad for forcing me to sit away from some white folks on a ferry. I sued the damn city when a cop wrongfully arrested me for a traffic accident. And my daddy made our Baltimore family the most prominent of his race, and his weekly newspaper changed the face of black America. Without you, Carl, the NAACP chapter here would be abysmal. We have to fight our people's own timidity. There are no timetables. I realize the only practical timetables are in publishing. So how do we deal with this shit? A little mojo wouldn't hurt. <laughs> the only older I get, the more pragmatic I become. Don't beat yourself up, my friend. Good faith, deliberate speed, prompt start. We begin with a little step. I'll tell my readers the very same thing. <laughs> you know, I've come to the conclusion that we've got ourselves a package. That's what we've been and saying. And that's absolutely what I think. They didn't put a time limit on it, but my thought is still that we can go with this. I'm sure of it. I was telling the guys up here, the guys kept on woofing, and I told them. I said, you know, some people want some of the hall. Other people insist on having the whole hall. But then you have some people that want the hall, the head, the rice on the head. What the hell? The more you think about it, it's a damn good decision. And I talked to Carter before. He said that Plessy versus Ferguson is out. And Orr Warren, well, he's cut the ground from underneath them by saying that there's segregation in these schools. It's unlawful. Therefore, the burden is on you to get them lawful. And the damn laws have to yield. They've got to yield to the Constitution. Yield means yield. Yield means give up. Yield means fucking yield. You know, I'm not enthusiastically happy, Thurgood. But I'm happy. <laughs> Are you happy? I'm happy. Because if you're happy, I'm happy. You know, the more you think about it, it had to be anticlimactic. Hell, I spent so many years working on this. So what are you going to do, Thurgood? We'll file state by state. Each municipality which refuses to integrate, we will yank their asses in the court. We'll march tall through the courts from Maryland through Georgia just as Sherman's army marched through the Confederacy. And I don't see any reason why that if we beat Virginia and Carolina that the rest of them ain't gonna wake up. Oh, you're damn right they are. You can say what you want, but those white crackers are gonna get mighty tired of having Negro lawyers beating the hell out of them every day in court. They're gonna get mighty tired of it. Essie May had the privilege of being reared in the North, where life was more progressive, more tolerant perhaps. And she had the private financial support of one of the most elite sons of Southern white families. I tell this to my classes. Essie May had lighter skin than many black children. Some say she even bears a remarkable resemblance to her famous white father. The school bell rang. My kids flew out of the room. 
all except one, that is. Manuel Diego sat quietly in the back row. He has jet black eyes and walks very slowly. He asked me to go on. He was listening. Most of the black children SMA knew in South Carolina went to extremely poor schoolhouses that lacked toilets and books and teachers. Many of the black children never made it past the sixth grade. Essie May had her share of good luck growing up, yet I can imagine the pain in her profound heart. In a manner of speaking, she was the talented, unacknowledged daughter of all Southern white gentlemen. And Manuel quietly rose from his seat. When I saw you for the first time on your campus, Essie May, you were so stunned. We both were, my dear girl. And I'll never forget driving to your campus, and I'll never forget how frightened I was to make contact. And I don't readily admit my fears. It would mean the death of my career as certain as God is my witness. But I had my driver circle your campus for hours before I found the nerve to get out of the car. <laughs> Yet I felt so much better at the end of the day. I ask God for his help. I ask my wife for her help. I ask you for your help. Our meeting almost ended at that moment. You saw me shed some tears, didn't you? Yes. And I can count on one hand how many times I ever cried as a grown man. All living things do cry, sir. Mm. Your mother and I didn't have very much in common. But we were drawn to each other in a profoundly powerful way. You see, my daddy was very stern with me, but he loved me in his own way, and I had to respect that. Still, I did many wild things behind his back because he would often give me a licking with a hickory branch. Now, I think my daddy knew I took a liking with your mama. I really think he knew. But my mind and my heart we're a million miles away from that hickory stick. Your mother was an extremely beautiful woman, SMA. Photographs just don't do justice. And she had such warmth in her open hands. She had healing hands. Everything she touched was given more life, like sunbeams after an April shower. <laughs> yeah, like sunbeams after an April shower. Oh, I should have had more self-discipline. And I wish I had better words to describe how I felt for her. In public, I have a torrent of words, but here with you in private, knowing what we both know, my tongue gets so dry and defeated. The Thurman family defines so much of what makes South Carolina a historic and proud state. And in my heart and in my mind, you too are a member of the Thurmans. No, I'm not. Oh, in God's view, you definitely are. Maybe in God's view. You do believe in him? Yes. Good. <laughs> Why did he create colored people? <laughs> Why? Because God sees life in so many glorious varieties. That's not what I asked, sir. Oh, now, come on. You know colored folk are closer to God. How? Why? Because colored folk work the fields, and God is more present in the farm. <laughs> That colored folks sing hymns and gospel much finer than white. Colored folk rock in God's deepest rhythm. And colored folk sense paradise much finer than other folk. In poverty, 
God fills the heart. All proven that you're closer to God. And I envy you the purity of your heart as a man. Now, what is that? It's a gift for you. Oh, my goodness, whatever for. What's your birthday? Oh, no, no, darling, I was born in December, December 5. Oh, my gosh. Oh, now, I never make a big deal out of my birthday, so what difference does it make? I'll accept the present of yours any day of the year. But do you know what would just thrill me right now? What? Your singing voice. Your malevolous voice. I only sing in the church choir. Well, don't you ever sing for your aunts? Sometimes. Oh, please, as it may seem for me today. Here? Now? I would be so honored. What should I sing? Why, anything your little heart would like. I feel so awkward, Senator. Oh, now stop calling me Senator. I'm so sorry. Well, don't you ever sing in your shower? No. <laughs> well, what do you like singing for your choir? Hymns, mostly. Sometimes Amazing Grace. Oh, sing that, my dear. That would be lovely. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, it's so beautiful yesterday. I can feel the tears rising inside of me. was grace that set me free. Of course, I wish that President Eisenhower would assume a truly heroic position on school integration. Amen. I would even settle if he would take a defined position, to say the least. And I know that he is a decent man. He can help instruct the nation in a million ways, but this president, this World War II hero, chooses to hide like a deer in the woods. I want very much to conclude this talk early because I realize you all want to beat the rush hour traffic. And I want to thank this northern chapter of the NAACP for sponsoring this benefit. And I want to thank you for contributing so generously to the NAACP. Amen. Believe me, every dollar helps enormously. So I have one last thing to read aloud from school investigator Matthew Whitehead. In Clarendon County, South Carolina, Open galvanized buckets with tarnished dippers inserted furnished the drinking water for the children who attended the two nearby Negro elementary schools. Whereas the children in the two white schools were rid of this health hazard by having fountains. Each Negro school had a roof that leaked buckets when it rained. For the two white schools, there's bus transportation available. Although three Negro schools are located in isolated, unimproved areas, the children have no transportation available whatsoever. At the Rambay School, 
movie investigator Matthew Whitehead found two little Negro girls in the first grade, age six, walked each day a round trip of 10 miles to get to school. The white schools have a clean lunchroom with a paid attendant and other workers in charge, but nowhere in the Negro schools could one find any signs of a lunchroom. Janitorial services were found in both white schools, but no such services in the Negro schools. At Rambay, there is not a single desk in the entire school. In contrast, the white schools have a desk for each student, and each desk has a flower. At Somerton Elementary School, there is a spacious auditorium for aesthetics, assemblies, films, etc. At Summerton High School, there is a combination gymnasium which has excellent provisions for all activities. At the three nearby Negro schools. I'll just end here. You all get my drift. Thank you so kindly. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Chief Justice. May I please join you for a brief moment? <laughs> Seemed like only yesterday when we were all running on that national ticket in 48. <laughs> we do have something in common. Our mild but sustained diversion to Harry Truman. I've never disliked Mr. Truman. Well, yes, I've learned to like the former president now that he's back in Kansas. <laughs> Missouri. <laughs> I have been a great admirer of the high court. And I have been a steady observer of the profound decisions of late. I'm only a man from the South, and life in our nation's capital is still quite daunting. You and your colleagues have changed the face of our society, as I'm sure you understand the problems we're experiencing between the races and between societies. I worry at times about the infusion of communist ideas and communist infiltrators and, co and Jewish instigators and general discord into my cultured South. Come to the point, Senator. The point. The point being how in the hell will the High Court, with all due respect, enforce these cockamamie new decisions when even Eisenhower is uncommitted? Hello, Carl. I'm calling from Arkansas. I figured you'd be there sooner or later. I thought you would be here. Well, I can't leave Baltimore just yet. I'm swamped with work now. It's not looking pretty down in Little Rock. Well, you could call the FTB and have them ship over a truckload of the sweetest flowers. It ain't gonna make a bit of difference. It stinks to high heaven down there, Thurgood. Plus, you've got one of the biggest buffoons in the governor's office. <laughs> Orville Faubus is a buffoon, I'll grant you that. Faubus warned that blood would run in the streets. And I think he wants to make his prophecy self-fulfilling. You've got Daisy Bates waking up one morning to a cross flaming in her front yard. 
You know she's the she know she's the NAACP chapter president. She's got family for Christ's sakes. She was threatened before. We're not just talking the Klan, mind you. Young white kids are throwing rocks into her window too. All because she let in nine black students in the central aisle. Today's note said that the rocks will become dynamite by the end of the week. Carl, I thought, hell, we all thought that once we got the Brown decision, this whole thing would be over. This is three years later. We are not naive. But damn it, I fell into that fool's trap too, Fergood. So Central High opens and the National Guard surround the school. You know the guards full of good old boys. They aren't trained for civil disturbances. Hell, they're not even potty trained. This is gasoline on an open fire. One team, Elizabeth Eckford, went by herself instead of joining Daisy's group. Not that safety in numbers would have changed the picture much. The damn soldiers dropped their bayonets on her and the poor girl was almost killed by the rabid white mob. What are you gonna do? I've gotta get Eisenhower into this dog fight somehow. <laughs> and off the golf course! I know, we were lucky with the local courts. We convinced us Davies to rule in favor of the school plan despite the scare tactics from the governor's office. I know Fobbs telegrammed the White House asking the president not to intervene despite the court order. So I had the NAACP telegram the White House and issued a flurry of press releases, but that's not enough. I know. We've got to be body and spirit in the public eye because Eisenhower is afraid of this whole miserable thing. I'm going to Daisy Bates' house. Oh. Under escort. Take care, Fergood. It's a risk, I know. Well, what do you think Eisenhower will do? Probably have the Justice Department go to court to seek an injunction to pull the guard away from the school. Well, that only slaps Fabus's wrist. I know. Fabus is prepared to ask for a one-year delay to integrate Central, to calm the white community as if they needed bomb for the soul. In my heart, I know the kids. The white kids would be decent to the nine black teens. I fear Fabus is only fanning the flames, and not even the 101st Airborne will bring peace to Little Rock. Well, do you think conditions would change once Eisenhower leaves office? I don't know, but I don't intend to wait another four damn years to find out. Thurgood, this is the angriest that I've ever heard you. No, it isn't. Carl, I was drinking with a lawyer friend of mine, Branton, in a local pool hall. In comes a young black guy smoking a cigar and carrying a pool cue. And he comes over to me and he says, Hey, lawyer man, you know anything about this shit where you come back after you die? I asked the man if he was talking about reincarnation. He nods yes. And then I told him, I know more about the law than about spiritual affairs. Then he shoots back at me. Well, if you find anybody that has anything to do with it, tell him when I come back to the earth, I don't give a good crap whether I come back a new man, a woman, a horse, a cow, a squirrel, whatever it is, let it be pearly white. And there it is, Thurgood. So put in your authoritative Afro-American journal, we are going to drop all other cases nationwide and the full legal staff of the NAACP will concentrate every bit of energy on Little Rock until hell freezes over. The kids will be safely back to school in September. Well, I will go ballistic! And white folks did not want Marshall to go ballistic. Three years later, in January 1960, Strong Thurman suffers one of the first great shocks of his life. Listen, Charlie, please shut that trap. 
my mind simply isn't on business right now and I don't know what to tell you. I, ha I have no heart for anything. Breathing is a hellish predicament since you know me to be a man of great action. Now, listen, just please tell your dear patient folks that their concerns are clearly top joy and with God's speed, your trust will be well placed with me. No, Charlie, you don't have to come. That, but, oh, no. Goodbye, Charlie. I didn't even know you was waiting out there. How long? Just a minute or two. Oh, I didn't think you could come. Things have changed. Is your husband with you? No. Well, I know I look haggard and just plain awful. Not really, sir. Oh, please, have a seat. Thank you. She was buried at Bethany Cemetery on a lovely hill under tall elm tree. I know. I read a full account in the yeah. paper. Elms are so stately and beautiful. Lyndon Johnson led a delegation of Southern senators. He and I patched up our differences quite suddenly. <laughs> you would like, Jean. I met your wife once. Oh, that's right. Did she know about me? Of course. I told her about you soon after our wedding. I'm at a loss for words. Yeah, we, were, we met in 1941, when Jean's father took her and her high school class to watch a court proceeding in Barnwell County. I was the presiding judge as a mayor, and I immediately took notice of her special life. I saw her again five years later at her Winthrop College. Jean was her senior class president, and I was the governor-elect. I was voted for and felt it was the proper time to start a family. So my office sent word to her that she should consider coming to work on my team. <laughs> well, she reported to work July 1, two weeks shy of her 21st birthday. Now, Jean was a part of my entourage that went to the National Governor's Conference in Salt Lake City. Jean stayed behind in her hotel room typing out a boring speech while I treated Governor Earl Warren's daughters to a rodeo. <laughs> well, the following day, Jean just teased the living hell out of me that I was dating the Warren girls. <laughs> and it was that point I knew she loved me. <laughs> Two months later, she wrote her parents about our plans to make things permanent. So I proposed formally to Jean by dictating a letter to her. My dear Jean, you have proved to be a most efficient and capable secretary. And the high quality of your work has impressed me very much. I regret to inform you that your services will be discontinued as of the last day of this month. <laughs> and in the next paragraph, I went on to confess my love for and ask for her hand. Well, G closed up her steno book and walked out of the room. Well, I was just crushed. I thought she was going to reject me. And you know, I just cannot stand rejection. <laughs> well... Jean kept me in dire suspense to the very end of the day. She had typed out my letter with all her changes, and at the bottom, 
She tapped out her acceptance. What does that say right there? My dearest Strom, yes, all my love, Jean. All my love, Jean. Her health changed overnight. Last summer, she began to tire easily and she, she, her concentration was failing. As a result, Jean ran into a truck, but she walked away without a scratch. And at that point, I, I thought she had a guardian angel for life. However, last August, she collapsed in our apartment and more seizures had followed. Yeah, it was a damn brain tumor. After surgery, she was partially paralyzed. I'm sorry to be going on like this. Please, I understand. She was only 33 years old. I knew she was very young. I couldn't understand how a woman so beautiful, bright, and vital could be stolen out of our lives like that. I couldn't imagine why God would allow such a tragedy to happen. Oh, I cried, I cried. I cried so wild over my lost gene. The nation will sorely miss her. Uh, Indeed. You know, my biggest regret, you know, is that we could not have children. I'm sorry. I've always loved your sincerity, SMA. Having children is a blessing. Indeed. At least for me. I thank God every week in church. Oh, I can see that all over your face. They need to see you. Yeah. Your children? And when they get older, I have to put matters in the right perspective. Am I making that hard for you? I don't know. Oh, some days I have a firm grip on my beliefs. Other days are quite nettles. I don't think I'm being very clear. What I mean to say is that in Washington we are very visible and very exposed far more now than when I was a state governor. These are your grandchildren, sir. Yes, you're absolutely right. I'm not asking too much. No, 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 you're not. I know you're not. I can't read your mind. Well, can't you see that I'm on the verge of tears? Are you in town for the weekend? Yes. Good. I can help you. I certainly hope so. Oh, l- let me ring you at your hotel. Actually, I'm staying with friends. My children came with me. Oh, well then, you must phone me at my home number tonight, SMA, and we'll proceed as best we can. We are a discreet family after all, and I am determined to meet your darling children this weekend. Five years later, July 1965, Marshall, now a federal court judge, is in his chambers and receives a surprising phone call. Thurgood Marshall speaking. Hello, Judge Marshall. Do you have a few minutes? Yes, but of course, Mr. President. How's your day? (laughs) How's your wife? Just fine, sir. Good. Are you uh, enjoying sitting on the appeals court? I like to work, Mr. President. Oh, be honest, Thurgood. 
the cases can be dreary. Dreary or weary, you say? <laughs> but I think my contributions are lasting and monumental. It, it was so nice to see you the other day at the White House ceremony. Oh, indeed. For a relatively young man, you are fast becoming part of American history. I'm not all that young, sir. Yeah, I never had a moment to thank you years ago for rallying the NAACP to support wholeheartedly my Senate race. I'm the kind of guy that keeps track of these wonderful deeds. I, I keep a notebook in my head, and the pages get thumbed every damn night. Which is to say that I have admired you from afar, and that I hold the NAACP to the highest level. When did we first meet? Ooh, I would say going all the way back to the 1940s in Texas. Well, you were fighting the all-white primary system. That's right, sir. Well, you were a smart, tenacious SOB, <laughs> and it seems you win more battles than not. Well, they are battles, Mr. President, and then they are wars. Oh, they're true, and we both know the distinction. You handled the Supreme Court appearances quite well, and you took the dignified and proper measures to each southern state in due course and on your timetable. Uh, I respect your pragmatism and your sense of an integrated American society. I know that the term gradualism can mean many things to many people. Well, on my end, I've made the word a forward step. It's not a word of stigma to me on my time. Well, let me cut to the chase, then. Uh, you are my kind of man, Thurgood. You truly are. You are a hero in my book, and I put my full faith into your character. So listen carefully. I want you to be my Solicitor General. I know it pays a little less than on the Court of Appeals, and I, and I know you like silky black robes, and I know you have a lovely lifetime appointment with a guaranteed pension. But like I say, I want you, no, I need you to be my Solicitor General. Mr. President, I don't know what to say. Well, you have mighty fine legal skills. And none of your hundred or so decisions on the Second Circuit has ever been overturned. I find that impressive, Thurgood. You'd be the first black to serve that position, and this would be the top black official to ever serve the U.S. government. And don't worry about the confirmation hearings, because I know how to handle those in Congress on this one. <laughs> we'll have a bumpy ride, but nothing to lose any sleep over. Now, I know that you have a particular hankering to serve on the high court. And that would be, in no uncertain terms, a supreme wish. <laughs> and I know that the press make all sorts of conjectures about this being your springboard to the Supreme Court, but the Solicitor General is all I have up my sleeve today. So, my friend, even if it looks like one, this isn't a quid pro quo. I'm a Texan. I'm not assuming any obligations, and you shouldn't assume any expectations for a grander office. Oh, and say goodbye to New York. I expect you to move your wife, Sissy, and the boys to Washington. No commuting whatsoever. I suppose I'm clear as mud to you. No, I think that's all I have to say today to you, Judge Marshall. Well, I'll have to think it over, sir. Oh, of course. You take all the time you need to think it over with the missus. Call you tomorrow for your answer. <laughs> yes, LBJ had a lot of charm and deference. In Thurman's office on one of the warmest days in Washington. Well, it certainly is hot outside, but I think I just interrupted you. I'm not a young girl anymore. In my eyes, you will always be young. Actually, I want to show my age, warts and all. Really? 
I like the wrinkles under my hairline. Well, then you are unlike most women I know. I'm not like most women, sir. I know. <laughs> the country is changing. In what way? There are greater freedoms for young people, for disadvantaged people. All to the good. I think it began with President Kennedy's assassination. We're all a little stunned, and it's not quite a year. Yes, every man, woman, and child has been traumatized. And perhaps the country will address many more social issues now. I must say, Kennedy was ill-prepared to move a great deal of domestic bills through Congress. I personally think it was his elite New England upbringing and the wealthy family estate. You know, Kennedy, his daddy was a bootlegger during Prohibition, whereas Johnson did not come from privilege and has more savvy than a carnival barker and the willpower of a marauding rhinoceros. I had hoped you would lend more support towards the Civil Rights Act. Why? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> I'm surprised you would even mention that question. We do best outside of such talk. Maybe I'm saying this on behalf of my mother. I see. Do you? The Civil Rights Act is a severely flawed bill, and the very idea of the bill serves the communists in their propaganda efforts. The bill is redundant. States already have their own democratic mechanisms for easing the tension between the races. You know that's untrue. I do not. We are still in a position to change how the country is I wish that were true, but 21 conservative Southern Democrats in the Senate are a significant consensus. And on the other team, you have Goldwater, who's got Jewish blood, leading a good minute Republicans also in opposition to the Civil Rights Act. The essential problem with that bill is how sweeping and reckless it would be. Oh, now, look, I, I'm nearly ready to quit the Democratic Party forever. I felt that in 48, and I feel even stronger now. There really does need to be a realignment of social thought and practicality. But LBJ is simply guilt-tripping this entire country. Please, can we not focus on politics? I just hope that one day this so And it will come someday. Yes, it may. I, I am truly saddened by the passing of Julius. Thank you. What a lovely husband he was to you, and a magnificent father to your children. You know that we had married in secret. No. His parents only knew about it afterwards. That was Julius's way of doing things, quietly and modestly. Well, Julius worked very hard for several good causes. He was ill for quite some time. Yes. Did he suffer? He did. Oh, may God look over his soul. How is your children? Coping as best they can. Oh, please convey my love and condolences to your children. He was a very bright individual as a man. I knew that when Julius returned to Savannah to practice law, that his career would flourish. In part due to your efforts. Oh, nonsense. He was very given to civic groups especially to the local chapter of the NAACP, which he added. His achievements were many. And I know that his pinnacle came with the teacher pay case with credit. <laughs> As it may, now we've both suffered the loss of a spouse, and it's so very hard to move on. 
Yes, it is. Thank you so very much for finding the time to journey here. Actually, I had to come. I didn't think a letter would be appropriate. Our family problems are considerable. Julius's death benefits are not sufficient by any standard. We're experiencing a terrible drain on our savings, despite my teaching income. I see. I'm embarrassed to be saying. Oh, no, now don't be. Frankly, it's been a very long time since I've asked for any assistance. I don't remember. Believe me. Oh, I do, my dear, but you please must not panic. I'm trying to be calm. Now, are you asking for some annuity over a span of years, or would a single payment suffice? I think an annuity would be wiser. All right. At least until the children have grown. And through their college years, too. And then at some point, yes, it may, the check is going to have to come from some third party outside of the city, and that'll make it easier on both of us. Fine. Here, come here. You're putting on weight, sir. Oh, well, now, I still swim four times a week, but I think that pool's getting small. Maybe you're enjoying your share of desserts. <laughs> well, at my age, 61, I allow myself one dessert every evening. It is my personal Magna Carta. I eat dessert, too. <laughs> oh, now, how is your teaching? Going well. I like teenagers. Oh, but that god-awful music. Oh, you don't like the Ronettes or the Beatles? Oh, honestly, I don't know the Beatles from the Bow Weevils. Well, the Beatles are from England. The Ronettes are from Detroit, town. <laughs> I have to ask you something, sir. What? Did you really wrestle down Senator Yarborough of Texas the other day? Yes. Why, may I ask? Because he's a damn asshole. <laughs> I was trying to prevent a quorum from confirming a Maleficent director's appointment. And he thought he was being cute and made a little scene out in the hallway. Now, it's not just that Yarbrough is a flaming activist, but he's always goading me to do the wrong thing. Well, he grabbed my hand and tugged me toward the committee room. I told him I knew judo from the army. I got him on the ground first, and then we were into a mule race all over again. And I truly whooped his liberal ass. <laughs> In just a few years, Lyndon Johnson was prepared to nominate Marshall to the Supreme Court. The last three court appointments, White, Goldberg, and Fortas, had gone from nomination to confirmation in just under two weeks. But this time, the FBI was asked by the Senate to check on Marshall's alleged ties to communists. Many of the senators on the Judiciary Committee were prepared to kill the nomination. One representative branded Marshall as a scamp and a cheat in the congressional record. However, the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover gave Marshall a clean bill of health. The delay with the hearings gave the segregationist press ample time to take shots at Marshall. But other media in and around the nation handed Marshall strong words of support. Senator James Eastland from Mississippi was the committee chairman. The chair next recognizes the distinguished junior senator from the great state of South Carolina, the Honorable James Strong Thurmond. Senator Thurmond. Thank you, Mr. Chair, for your generous introduction. Uh, Judge Marshall, in view of the fact that your law practice for the last many years 
before you came with the federal government was concerned with the 13th and 14th amendments primarily. I'd like to ask you a few questions in your area of expertise. Now, do you know who drafted the 13th amendment? No, sir, I don't remember. I have looked it up time after time. And what kind of legislation would, in your estimation, be forbidden by the provision against involuntary servitude? I don't know. Do you believe that the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was constitutional before the ratification of the 14th Amendment? I'm in the middle on that one. I've researched that when the school cases were up, and I consider it unimportant because the amendment was adopted and, the, uh, and they were reenacted. But there was an argument made that, that your statement was true. It was made on the floors of Congress. Well, to what extent was the constitutionality of this act supported by reference to the Privileges and Amenities Clause of the Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution? It was argued. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that answer. It was so argued on the floors of Congress. What theories were then current in the Republican Party which gave support to the position that the Civil Rights Act of 1866 could be constitutionally passed by Congress? Well, of what significance do you believe it is that in deciding the constitutional basis of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Congress copied the enforcement provisions from the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? Senator, I just don't remember all of those debates, which were very voluminous. And I have not looked at them nor researched that point since 1953. <laughs> what? constitutional difficulties did Representative John Bingham of Ohio see in congressional enforcement of Article 4, Section 2, through the necessary and proper clause of Article 1, Section 8? I don't understand the question. What constitutional difficulties did Representative John Bingham of Ohio C in Congressional Enforcement of Article 4, Section 2 through the Necessary and Proper Clause of Article 1, Section 8. I don't see that I, any... Uh, I really am confused as to what actually you were driving. Well, Senator Kennedy, I repeated the question. Well, but maybe there was some other way you could... Well, I don't think I can make it any plainer if you know the answer. I see. It's just a question of whether you know the answer. I see it. Could you tell us how the solicitor... Well, I can tell you that Article 4, Section 2 did not set forth the powers vested in the United States, and that's the answer. Well, that's the answer, I see. <laughs> On March 8, 1850, Andrew P. Buck, a South Carolina Democrat, stated, and I quote, a free man of color in South Carolina is not regarded as a citizen by her laws, but he has high civil rights. His person and property are protected by law, and he can acquire property and can claim the protection of the laws for their protection. 
but they are persons recognized by law and protected by law. Now, do you believe that this passage shows that the state of Carolina, while a slave state, was the national leader in giving civil rights and protection of the laws to, to colored people? Or, or do you think that this just shows that these terms had a different meaning 100 years ago? Well, I certainly don't agree that South Carolina was the leader in giving Negroes their rights. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chairman, that's all. I, I wish to thank the Honorable Chairman from the state of Mississippi and uh, you also, Judge Marshall. Thank you. <laughs> you were a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, right? That's correct, sir. And did you write a dissenting opinion in the case of the people of New York versus Gallimason found in volume 342? Yes, sir. <coughs> found in volume 342, Federal Report, second series at page 255. Yes, sir. And in that dissenting opinion, did you make the following statement found on page 279? And I quote, First, peaceful protest, speech, and petition are forms of self-help not unknown during the era of Reconstruction when section 1448, parenthesis 2, was forged. I think I did. I don't have that opinion in front of me. Did you cite a book I don't in that opinion the, as authority? I don't remember the book. By a man named Aptica entitled A Documented History of the Negro People in the United States. I think I did. Well then, of course. I don't want to leave the impression that you are presently, or that you have ever been, a communist. But did you know, at the time you cited that work, the author of that book, Herbert Aptica, I positively Herbert Aptica was an avowed communist for many years, did not know that. and that he was the leading communist the theoretician in the entire United States. I positively did not know that, and had I known that, I would not have cited In fact, him. if you had known that, would you have allowed that to be an authority? I would not have cited him had well, I known that. Well, do you think that you are prejudiced against white people in the South? <laughs> not at all. I was raised, what would I say, way up south in Baltimore. And I worked for white people all of my life, up until the time I went to college. And from there, my practice was, of course, primarily in the south. And I don't know, with the possible exception of one idiot that I was against, that I have any feeling about him.
Despite an 11-day delay sparked by Eastland, Lyndon Johnson pushed things to a conclusion. August 3rd, the committee cast their votes, 11 to 5, recommending Marshall's confirmation. <laughs> the delays with the hearing, the Senate's full vote, was delayed until the end of August. Senator Strom Thurmond and a few of his southern senators initiated a mini filibuster blocking Marshall. When the filibuster ended, the Senate went 69-11, approving Marshall for his seat on the Supreme Court, the first black man to claim that honor. The president was successful in asking 20 senators to avoid voting, knowing that these Southerners would risk re-election. The long ordeal was over for Marshall and his family. And on October 7, 1967, also the year his friend and close ally Carl Murphy died, Marshall, now the 96th Associate Justice to the Supreme Court, privately took the judicial oath in the chambers of Justice Hugo Black. Raise your right hand, place your left hand upon the Bible, and repeat after me. I, Thurgood Marshall, I, Thurgood Marshall, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will administer justice without respect, that I will administer justice without respect to persons, and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and to faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all duties incumbent upon me as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States according to the best of my abilities and understanding, agreeable to the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America. So help me God. Congratulations and welcome to the court. <coughs> Senator Thurman married a second time in 1968 to Nancy Janice Moore. He was nearly three times her age. He fathered four children with her. And the last child came in 1976 when the senator was 73 years old. On December 5, 2002, just after 2 p.m., two aides helped Strom Thurmond through a fawning crowd in the Dirksen Senate office building. About 500 guests had come to salute the oldest and longest presiding senator in American history a man who had become 100 years old, a Southerner who was seen as the unforgettable living monument to the Capitol. The Air Force christened its 100th C-17 cargo plane spirit of Strom Thurmond. There was a strong showing of members from both the House and Senate at the Dirksen Building, including four Supreme Court justices enjoying chocolate-covered strawberries and bowls of banana and butter pecan ice cream. They stood in an absurdly long receiving line to greet the centenarian who was displayed on a small rake by the podium.
Do you like the dessert? Mmm, I like the butter pecan, yeah. Oh, you look so much younger and so elegant. Is that a new hat? All your friends are here. Are they here? All too many, sir. This is a very big event. Can they see you? No. Are you sure? Happy birthday, Daddy. The senator seemed at times in a fog and then sharply alert. His eyes were tearing frequently. At 3 p.m. precisely, the room quieted for a round of sincere tributes and roasting jokes. Among the speakers was Senator Trent Lott, who boasted and stated that his 89-year-old mother still had a crush on Strong. <laughs> boasted that his home state supported Thurman in the 1948 presidency campaign, and that if the rest of the country had followed our lead, we wouldn't have had all these problems over all these years. The political fallout was great for Lott. A good many people in the media faulted Lott for speaking code about the nostalgia for seg racial segregation, and he had to step down from his party's leadership. The senator's party culminated in a surprise appearance by an awful Marilyn Monroe impersonator who sang to him with a strained rendition of Happy Birthday, Mr. President Pro Tem, and then kissed his wide forehead, leaving a lipstick mark in the shape of the state of South Carolina. <laughs> Thank you all so very much. You're all beautiful people, and I appreciate what you've done for me. I hope that God will grant you a long life and that you enjoy the time. At which point, the senator's daughter, Julie Thurman Whitmer, stepped to the podium and told the crowd she was expecting his first grandchild on the 4th of July. His first white grandchild. Oh, Julie, I knew you'd give me exactly what I wanted. Justice Thurgood Marshall, Senator Strom Thurmond, two profoundly different political figures. They evoked the entire terrain of American race relations over the last 60 years. Perhaps their ghosts know that Jim Crow may not be dead after all. The percentage of blacks in majority white Southern schools, which peaked in 1988 at 43%, dropped to 31% by 2000. On one hand, this country has made tremendous progress over the last 50 years of race relations. On the other hand, because of economics and class exclusivity, we are seeing disturbing rollbacks to the Supreme Court's victory over Jim Crow. I'm standing outside Essie May's house in Los Angeles. This is an ordinary home blending in with the many other homes on either side of the street. I know Essie May lives here. 
I want to knock loud and forcefully on her front door. I expect her to answer. I owe it to her to know how I feel. My emotions should spill into hers. My tears are real and I can taste the salt. I know that she deserves privacy, but I must ask her one very important question. Mrs. Washington Williams, may I please call you S.C. May? Do you remember me? Of course you do. Of course. S.C. May is such a beautiful name. My name is Lisa Violet, but no one calls me by my middle name anymore. Essie May, could you please tell me how your children convinced you to go public about your famous white father from the Old South? Essie May, please look me in the eyes. Essie May, please remember something about me. I so need to talk to you. I'm standing outside Essie Mae's house in Los Angeles. I'm 99% certain she lives here. Once she answers the door, I imagine the many ways she plans to answer my question. She declares her basic right to privacy. She tells me that her children asked her to do this decades ago. She explains that she dearly loved and respected Senator Thurman. She cries discreetly and looks away. She shows me a letter she planned to release after her death. She bites her lip and says she has no explanation whatsoever. She smiles softly, a grandmother's smile, and says, the nation is ready to hear the news. There are no more slaves and no more mistresses. There is only one toilet and one water fountain and one classroom for all America's children. The nation has waited long to heal. I'm standing outside Essie Mae's house in Los Angeles. Up in the clouds, a radiant rainbow strikes my cold eye. A bus goes by. Essie May could have been another Rosa Parks. Essie May could have been another Rosa Parks.
yesterday. I can feel the tears rising inside of me. Whoa.